Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. The number one mistake I often see is just misalignment. Misalignment between leadership, HR, recruiting, finance. It can take shape in many ways, but the reality is that unless there is a program that everyone has bought into, you're going to have conflicting views on how compensation should be administered across employees. 40 years ago, employees didn't have access to any data. They had no idea what the market rate was for something. And so now I come to the table as the employee against the company, and there's this tension because I can say, hey, here I have my data. Unless you show me yours, I'm not trusting that you're being totally trustworthy. That's not the relationship you want to have with your employees. And broken trust can lead to not only dissatisfaction, but employee attrition. And I don't think that people really realize how expensive attrition really is. The key to your business is success, your people. Get 15.5, the performance management platform that helps you improve employee engagement and performance. Visit 15.5.com demo to schedule a demo today. Welcome back to another episode of the I Hated Here podcast, all about workplace cultures and what makes them great. I'm Hibi Youssef and your host, and joining me today is Enrique. Enrique, welcome. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I'm so pumped to have you. Tell the audience who you are, what you do. So I am Enrique Esclusa. I'm one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of Assemble, and we're a compensation management platform that focuses on pay transparency and pay equity. So for any company looking to make compensation decisions, we believe that you should be more transparent and more equitable, but without the proper tooling, it just because of a very arduous process. So we're hoping to make that a lot simpler for companies. I love that. One of my biggest hardest things to do in HR always is compensation. And it's the thing I get the most amount of questions on. So I'm <laughs> so excited to have you today so we can talk through a lot of these things and really help HR people think about how they can make compensation easier and also equitable, which is a big thing we're all focused on. Before we dive in, though, I love to ask every guest about their hot take, but today we're going to do it a little differently. I'm going to ask, what's your one compensation hot take? So this might be a bit controversial, I think, for some people, but yes. I think discrete performance ratings or performance scores are going to make a comeback. In recent years, I've seen a lot of HR leaders kind of go away from the traditional performance rating or ranking system and kind of adopt more ongoing feedback. And I'm not here to debate that ongoing feedback is bad. I actually think it's great. But in the absence of a performance rating or a performance score, how do you actually substantiate why someone gets paid more or less than somebody else in a way that is defensible in the court of law and the court of public opinion? So I think that with the emergence of pay transparency laws and pay equity laws, you need to have this factor to say, this employee performed better than this other employee. And with the, with the absence of that, you are liable or expose yourself to more paid litigation risk. And it also makes the job for managers much harder to say to Heban Enrique, she makes more than you because she's better, yet I don't have the evidence to prove or suggest that. So I think we'll be seeing a comeback of performance ratings and scores. Some people think that you can just address the compensation piece and then you'd fix all the problems. But the reality is you can't really address compensation without addressing a myriad of factors like things like performance, things like how do we rate people and who makes the final say and decision to what's budget. So it's all interconnected. And so that's a really good hot take. I'm going to be thinking about that after this episode. Um, yeah. But let's let's dive in. I'm, I'm so curious to know, like, 
What are some common mistakes or shortcomings you've observed when it comes to compensation management? So maybe just a very quick background into how I came across compensation first, and then yes. I'll, I'll touch on your answer. <laughs> I actually came from the finance side, so not a traditional compensation background, but I joined a fast-growing cybersecurity startup in San Francisco. We didn't really have a compensation program or function at the time. And my job was to know where every dollar came in from and where it was going. Most of it was going to compensation and we were growing super quickly. And without a program, it was just impossible to actually forecast our budget what our spend was. And I'm Hispanic, which in the tech industry is not a high portion of the employee base. So I cared about pay equity. I wanted to do my job well, and I couldn't do it if I didn't have visibility and control over at least like what our compensation program would be. So I took it on and my CEO at the time said, hey, it's spreadsheet work and you're great with spreadsheets. Like you're the right person. But it was non-traditional to give it to finance. And I didn't know anything coming in. In fact, I had no idea it wasn't a solved problem. My first two jobs prior to that, they gave me an offer. I accepted and I was just thankful to have the offer. And later I learned, wait a minute, people have been negotiating their offers this whole time. So I kind of took a passion towards solving the problem because I thought it could help so many people from the line level employee receiving the compensation offer to finance teams struggling to actually forecast them and budget appropriately. And for managers who are put in a position where you're supposed to talk confidently about compensation because it's part of your job, but you don't do this at all. You only do it a couple of times or a few times a year. And it's such a high stressful conversation. All eyes are on you. Employees want a lot more. You yeah. are not always able to give them much, as much as they want. And sometimes you're not even enabled or really taught how to handle these conversations. So I just became very passionate about the pro- problem. I love the, the finance lens. I love that you have the finance lens. Yeah. And frankly, it's like, honestly, the, the high point of friction between HR and finance teams from what I can see and recruiting teams as well, because everyone has a different incentive. Finance wants to keep costs low. HR wants everyone to be paid equitably, but at times performance pay for performance cultures are at odds of paying people equitably. Recruiters need to hire people in quickly. And an easier way to do that is to pay them more. And so you have all of these conflicting viewpoints that creates a lot of tension. And of course, employees are often in the dark. So it's just a very stressful situation for all parties involved and the biggest expense item for the majority of businesses in the world. So it's just a fascinating concept. I love that that's what inspired you. But yes, common mistakes. So you've been doing this work, you you approach it from the finance lens, which I think is very different than maybe a lot of people who are listening who are traditional HR leaders who probably approach it from a different lens. So what are some common mistakes you've observed when it comes to doing compensation management? The number one mistake I often see is just misalignment. Misalignment between leadership, HR, recruiting, finance. It can take shape in many ways, but The reality is that unless there is a program that everyone has bought into, you're going to have conflicting views on how compensation should be administered across employees. Again, going back to my example, you might have a recruiter saying, we need to pay this candidate more in order to close them because their incentive is to close candidates, bring them in so that they can move on to the next hire. And I understand the motivation behind it. A manager will probably subscribe to the same, whereas finance will say, no, we don't have the budget for that role. We want to keep it at X dollars or X shares. And so that's a problem. The other type of misalignment I see a lot, which can lead to a lot of issues, is a CEO or leadership team having 
fundamentally different understanding and philosophy on compensation than the HR or compensation team putting together the program. We've seen this a lot where you might have a CEO that says, I want to pay exactly what the market data says. And the HR team fundamentally does not believe in that and actually believes in building a program that's informed by data, but not dictated by it. All of a sudden, when it comes to the CEO approval and CEO asks for the market data, sees a data point that's different than what's being offered, you have this collision or this tension. So that's often the root source of a lot of the issues that I see both at the hiring front and also down the line. It's certainly not the only problem, um, but I just, I would say it's like certainly the most painful one and one that if you don't address it up front, you're dealing with a lot of issues at a time that's really hard. Imagine you find Heba, an amazing candidate. You haven't aligned on compensation and now all of a sudden there's friction, there's stress and I as the manager or the recruiter, I need to have you. But because we didn't align on compensation early on, I am going to use my political capital to break through whatever the compensation program is because I need to have you. Had this been sorted before I even set out to hire you, we wouldn't be in this position where now you have conflict between, say, the hiring manager and the HR people team or the finance team, whomever is in charge of budgeting for the role. Oh, I have been there so many times that honestly, you were describing that and I just had like PTSD flashbacks to all the times this has happened to me. But it, it's pretty tough when the alignment isn't there. Also, like people, people's understanding of compensation. I think if you're not in finance and you're not in HR, I don't think people fully comprehend what compensation is either from like base comp to total comp. And then managers start interjecting like their feelings into it. Like, well, I really liked the candidates. So I want to give them 10K more. And it's like, no, that's literally not how this works. That's not how you build a fair and equitable system. We have to understand the motivations and also the visibility people have. A manager might be doing a decision that is locally perfect, meaning for their team, there are no problems. But actually, when you open up your view and the aperture and you realize, hey, in you doing this, you're introducing pay inequities across the entire org or function. And you don't have purview into that or visibility into it. So you're not necessarily at fault here, but I can't actually allow for this decision. That extra 10K actually makes it so that it's only white men who are at the top end of our band and everybody else who's not a white man is actually at the bottom. I can't do that. We need to have more fair and consistent practices. And so I think communication and education of the comp program and then being consistent around it helps avoid a lot of these issues. But if you don't have alignment or a program and you don't educate your stakeholders on that program, you can't actually get to that outcome. You end up with a lot more friction, a lot more employee attrition and employee dissatisfaction. And frankly, one of the problems I see a lot of people teams go through is all of a sudden the perception of the people team is you're not supporting me, you're making my job hard. Okay. And that's a sh shitty situation to be in where your peers and stakeholders and customers in a way see you as the enemy versus their partner. I hate being the bad cop, but sometimes I'll say I'll be bad cop here because I just know like the, the hard thing is like I know it's really easy to hate HR. It's easy to say like you're the people who enforce the policies, like you're the bad cop, you care about the organization. I think it's easy to fall into that role when hard decisions have to be made. But you're right, it does cause a lot of friction. And then I have managers who don't believe that I have their best interest at heart. But the hard part is like I have to care about the whole organization and introducing a tiny bit of pay inequity over years will build and build and build and build. And suddenly we're looking at 100 to 200 to 500K to fix the pay inequity we have internally. And you don't have budget for that oftentimes. So no, I literally do not. Every, I, yeah. I wish. 
Uh, you said something that I thought was really interesting about how compensation was like a spreadsheet thing and you're a spreadsheet guy. But that is how I feel like traditional compensation management has been done just in spreadsheets. So how mm -hmm. has that hindered organization and companies' abilities in terms of attracting and retaining top talent if we're just living in these spreadsheets and we're potentially not looking holistically at the organization? So I'll start by saying why spreadsheets are good and then why they're bad. And <laughs> I love why spreadsheets, to be clear. Yeah, I am fan. the biggest fan. It's it's how I built the early part of my career. So I can't say they're the worst. Um, yeah. What I will say is that spreadsheets are great when you're building something quickly and you need full control over it. So a fast analysis, uh, kind of something that's specifically molded to that situation, that scenario. But it's not something that can scale or frankly, like spreadsheets are notoriously bad for collaborating they take a lot of time to build and get it right. And you don't have the audit or access controls that you would want so that you can actually share these spreadsheets with people. What a lot of companies end up doing is saying, I built this perfect template. I am going to manually fill it out for every manager or recruiter, and then I'm going to send it out to them and share it with them. But then if you have to make an update to it, all of a sudden you may have to make it dozens of times because there are dozens of spreadsheets you've shared across the org. And you can't actually consolidate all that information very easily. There are ways you can do it with Google Sheets. It's just very, very painful and very error prone. And where you're dealing with the main source of an employee's livelihood, they don't want to know that this is how you're making those decisions. And frankly, I've met a lot of people, leaders who have so much on their plate that spending hours, days, or weeks managing spreadsheets is not the best use of their time. And so you end up opting for, well, if that's what it takes to actually do things really well, what's the faster, easier solution? Fine do something easier, but actually that shortcut can lead to a lot of bad outcomes. So what I've seen a lot of times happen is companies just will not even adopt or build a compensation program because of the effort required to do it in spreadsheets. And that's what can lead to a lot of pay inequities. That's what can lead to a lot of instances where managers are making uninformed decisions, not because they have malicious intent, but because they've not been aided. And then here comes a new people leader or someone who finally says, okay, I'm going to initiate our comp program. I'm going to level every employee and make sure that we're not doing anything wrong. You might be hundreds of employees at this point. And like you said, 100, 200, 500, or more thousand dollars to correct pay inequities, and you don't have the budget for it. So you've done the work and you realize you have broken bones in your body and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a really bad outcome to be in. And so what I would say is from the traditional compensation perspective of running things in spreadsheets, it only works when you're small enough where you can actually do things in a paper and pen easily. The moment that you actually don't know all of the people where you are involving other stakeholders in the process and you're not the sole decision maker, spreadsheets won't scale and they will break. You're under this false illusion that they will because if you built it, you're so proud of that work. I've been there. And I'm like, this spreadsheet is fucking perfect. It has everything <laughs> you need, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also the problem of, well, what if I leave? Nobody knows the ins and outs of that spreadsheet. No one ever will the way that I know it. No one will know how to make any changes to it. Or worse, they will make changes without realizing it and break the spreadsheet that was so delicately built, and now it no longer works. And I haven't even touched on the fact that this requires manual maintenance of bringing in data from different systems, whether it's your HRES, performance ratings, equity, and you may not even have access to these data sets. So you ask your counterpart whether that's your law firm for the cap table information or your finance team, then you pull that report from your HRIS. But by the time you actually updated the spreadsheet, it's obsolete. Things have changed. Employees have quit or they've been 
moved from one department to the other, or they received the raise. And so you're operating in a very high risk tool with stale data and making really important decisions that affect every employee as well as the business. I just don't think it's the way of the future. And when you look at other similar business processes across the companies, nobody's doing those things in spreadsheets, but compensation, I think partly because it's seen as a cost center has always, you know, it hasn't been giving enough budget for you to actually do things the right way. I would love a compensation tool, but then if I have to lobby for that budget over potentially other tools that are going to help the organization and other maybe more impactful teams, not saying that HR is not the most impactful team, but in some people's eyes, there are teams that are more impactful who need that budget for something else. I feel like it's so cutthroat when you're trying to get that approval. But the reality is like you just described a very real day-to-day for a lot of HR people where they're manually updating Google Sheets and then wondering like, why are my offers not being accepted? Or why do we have high attrition? Why do people keep leaving? And they've done all these studies over like why people leave companies. Compensation ends up being almost always the number one reason. I think there was like one year during the pandemic where it was like the second reason and the first reason was like growth, but it's because growth is also associated with compensation. Yeah. And so when you're when you're doing something like a one-off that doesn't actually scale, it's painful for you. I guarantee you it's like also painful the, for the employees and they're feeling the impact as well of like traditional compensation management. Not to mention the inconsistencies like and having not a non-transparent compensation practice. So, I mean, we talked we touched a little bit on how we manage it. And now can we talk a little bit about like the inconsistencies that you see? How have you seen that impact employee morale, engagement? What could HR do to potentially address this? You know, it's interesting because societally compensation was taboo for so long and you couldn't talk so about long. it. And then all of a sudden, new generations are saying, but we want to be transparent about compensation. And now governments are saying you have to be transparent about compensation. If you're in a pay transparency state, you may not just have to put a job posting with a, you know, a range. You might actually have to give every employee the range if they request it. Soon enough, employees are going to become wise enough to say, I want to know my range at any point in time. And if you don't have this, how are you going to disclose this? Now, all of a sudden, you might have litigation risk from an employee saying, you didn't disclose the range. I was probably outside of it. You probably underpaid me. I'm bringing in my lawyers. That is not productive for a business looking to grow or be profitable or achieve its its goals. It's not dealing with these fires that you could have easily avoided if you were more transparent about it, or at the very least had a system in place. And that will just mean a compensation tool. I mean, actually having what I would call your foundational pieces, have a compensation philosophy that guides how you see compensation, have a simple set of levels or a job architecture of these are the jobs we care about and the compensation bands around each this is what we're willing to pay for each of these jobs. You can keep it simple and then expand and make it more sophisticated as you grow. But I think the impact of not having such a system in place, it can lead to broken trust. So employees just don't trust that you're giving me a fair compensation or a fair offer, even if you are. And I think the other reason why this happens is because you know 40 years ago, employees didn't have access to any data. They had no idea what the market rate was for something. Today, you can Google your way and find a bunch of free sources, whether it's Glassdoor or salary.com. You can find these job postings. And so now I come to the table as the employee against the company. And there's this tension because I can say, hey, here I have my data. Unless you show me yours, I'm not trusting that you're being totally trustworthy. That's not the relationship you want to have with your employees. And broken trust can lead to not only dissatisfaction, but 
employee attrition. And I don't think that people really realize how expensive attrition really is. Like take an oh, example. So expensive. You lose, you have a team of 10 engineers and you, or 10 salespeople. You lose one person. Your productivity goes down, not just because that person isn't producing. It also goes down because the remaining nine need to help with the recruitment process, which doesn't just happen overnight. It probably takes you at least a month to hire a backfill. And that backfill, the day they start, they are not productive. It takes them time to ramp up. You might have hired that person who is coming at you more expensively than what the existing incumbent employee was asking for in a raise, and they're not going to be productive for months at a time. So if it's a salesperson, that is hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially of lost revenue from that single person, plus tens of thousands or more for each individual that was involved in the recruitment process or the onboarding process. And so when you actually quantify what the cost of attrition is, you realize it's so much more expensive than actually having a program in place to pay people fairly, communicate that you're paying people fairly, and when they can expect additional raises. Because if you don't have this like date in mind of, oh, I know I get raises in June and promotions happen also in September, then all of a sudden you have this you know, induced stress and uncertainty of, does the company even care about me, want to give me a raise? Maybe they don't. Let me take that recruiting call. And all of a sudden, you fall in love with the new company, you leave. All of this can really be addressed if you just have a program in place and you're more transparent about it. And I'm very excited that pay transparency laws are forcing companies to be more transparent. But we'll see whether companies adopt the laws in good faith and actually use this to their advantage or if they just treat it as a compliance checkbox because I think that's going to lead to more harm than actual benefit for companies. And I've heard a lot of CEOs already say like, well, I'm never going to get, no one's going to ever sue me for this. They're not going to be able to ever enforce these pay transparency laws. Okay. I've heard multiple CEOs say that. <laughs> yeah. I will take the other side of that bet. It's not, it's not the, that's not the point of the laws too, right? Like the point is to not do shitty things. I do think something really interesting would be if like HR, like, you know, you have to sign a handbook potentially every year. Sometimes you sign it like once. A lot of SOC 2 guidelines are changing where you have to potentially sign it every year. You have to re-sign your employee handbook. I almost wish there was like a compensation philosophy piece where it's like every year the employee just like signs like, I understand that my comp will be reviewed at least once a year and I can expect an adjustment if I'm eligible for it once a year. Like just setting the guidelines at the very front or even putting it in your employee handbook because the trust issue is very real and like HR already is not trusted by the average person. So if I ran up to the average person on the street and said, do you trust your HR team? I bet the average person would say no. And I would say if you ask the average person, the average person would tell you they feel they're underpaid, even when oh, they're boys. overpaid. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably very close to 100%. And I think a lot of times it's because they just don't know any better. They don't yeah. know the system. They don't know... When raises occur, they don't realize what level they are in the organization. So, of course, I want to feel like I'm underpaid because you always have the belief in yourself that you're worth more. And there's something that's, you know, I think very natural for people to feel of I'm delivering so much value because I only have my own perspective and I'm not paid enough to do this thing, even if you're actually paid way too much for that thing you're doing at work. If I had a dollar for every time an employee told me they felt like they were underpaid, I would not need to be working anymore. Like everyone thinks they're underpaid. I could just retire. Um, But it's interesting because there's this like, 
that misconception. And then you see employees like make decisions based on their pay and that they want to leave. But also, I think like for so long, there's been this like shame associated with talking about money. And HR has almost benefited from that like cultural taboo that we don't talk about money. And it's an uncomfortable thing to tell your friends how much money Mm -hmm. you make. But I keep telling people like I will ask all my friends how much money they make. I will ask anybody. And I have no shame about it because then I can either say, hey, I think you're a little bit underpaid as somebody who sees a lot of data or as their friend, then I have comprehension for like what my role would command in the market. Totally. And that's like a, I talk to HR leaders all the time, like, well, how much is your pay? Well, what level are you at? Like, let's talk about it. And then I share my pay as well openly because I'm like, I have nothing to lose. And I'm helping HR people understand that if we demystify this and get more comfortable talking about pay, it only benefits us in the long haul. Yeah, I agree. The one thing I would caveat there, or not necessarily caveat, but encourage people to consider is it isn't just salary. You should consider everything else because I've seen many times where people have said, I got a $10,000 raise, so I'm going to that company. And I'm like, okay, but what about commissions or bonuses, benefits, equity? And then you realize after the fact, oh shit, they actually left tens of thousands per year at this past company for a $10,000 raise. And when you actually consider it, you're like, well, you're actually paying so much more for your healthcare benefits that that $10,000 after tax and after the benefits you're paying to just be equal, it's actually more like $2,000 a year, which is literally less than $200 a month. Like, is that really big enough reason for you to leave the company that hopefully you loved and were really inspired in because you had the illusion of $10,000 more as a salary was enough to make up for? And it actually isn't a lot of times. It isn't. A lot of times- Companies do underpay and it's not a $10,000 gap. It's actually like $50,000. And especially if you include other forms, but I would definitely encourage people to consider the whole package, the total rewards package, not just salary. Ready to lead your team to peak performance? 15.5's comprehensive performance management platform equips HR leaders with the tools they need to navigate the sometimes rugged terrain of performance management. From 360 performance reviews to robust goal setting and OKR tracking, to ongoing manager-employee feedback tools like weekly one-on-ones and check-ins. With 15.5, you can ensure that employees are performing their best and your business is growing. Visit 15.5.com slash demo to schedule a demo today. I really get bugged when people talk about their equity as if it's like you are going to make X amount of money. Like I, I get bugged when HR teams are like, your equity could be worth millions. And it's like, well, if we look at the data and a company like less than 2% of companies see an exit and potentially you have to be there for four years to vest all your equity, people forget that too. And they have to exercise it. And there's a bunch of tax laws involved with exercising it. Like, I don't think the an average employee truly understands equity. And I think sometimes HR teams are potentially a little misguided when they talk about what the total impact to your compensation is when it comes to equity? I can tell you that personally, I was part of a successful exit at a company called Expanse and it was transformational. And I've seen more than enough companies not actually yield any equity value for its employees, especially now for a lot of companies that raised in 2021 at these obscene valuations they'll never hit. Like that equity is worthless, right? But (laughs) I think that this is where you you have to have a real understanding of what you're committing to and whether that equity could be worth or not. If you are entering one of these 
very highly valued companies with no revenue, like your equity is probably not going to be worth a lot. If you are being hired at a publicly traded company where your equity is effectively cash, you can't not assign value to it. Be foolish not to. So I think like a true understanding of equity helps you make that better decision. I do think companies, of course, sell the value of their equity package because you kind of have to. If not, you do yourself a disservice and you might miss out on employees who could see a lot of upside. Now, as the employee, you should always consider this a upside play and not what you rely on for your daily life. But when I did start Assemble and when I joined Expands, my calculus, if you will, was I need to be able to have the life that I want if I only have the salary. And then if things go well, that equity should be able to contribute towards something greater than that. And hopefully it's a lot. Hopefully we kick it out of the park and this is like an amazing outcome. Um, but I think that you need to be very wide-eyed when you make the decision to join a company and understand that the equity is upside. It's not a guarantee. I call it monopoly money until it's like real money. <laughs> and that's like, because I, I meet a lot of employees who like have never had equity explained to them either. And so like my job as an HR person is like, I'm going to talk about your compensation, your base, variable, whatever, how you actually get that. I'm going to talk about your healthcare benefits because that can impact your compensation. Like, are oh. we 100% paying your plan? Like, what does it look like? What's the average monthly cost? And then the last thing is, if there's equity, I'm going to talk about that equity. I'm going to explain, like, what does this mean? How many shares you get? How to exercise them? What a vesting schedule is? Because I meet a lot of people who, like, don't know what that is. Oh, and they're totally. too afraid in the offer to ask. Yeah. And so, like, my job of delivering an offer is, like, I need to be able to explain explain all these pieces but I do think like the average employee has no effing clue how equity works. And I've worked at four startups. So like I know. <laughs> I will share my experience, which hopefully makes people feel a little bit better. I came from investment banking and private equity, where part of my job was understanding the finances of a company really well. And in many cases, especially in private equity, we were buying and selling companies and giving equity packages to executives or the management team or whomever it was at those companies. And then mm -hmm. I got my first offer at a startup and they said 409A. And I was like, what the hell is that? And they were like a strike price. And I was like, I know it in the concept of public markets, but is that what this means here? And then there were yeah. like tax implications that I had to consider and QSBS and all these acronyms. And I was like, what the hell? And I'm supposed to be a more financially literate person than the average employee due to the nature of my job. And I had to literally ask all of my peers, many of whom had no idea what I was asking because I was one of, at least within my network, one of the earlier people to go into startups. I'd ask my future boss, like, hey, can you explain this to me? And I was very lucky that Dan at Expanse was very transparent and educational about what equity was. And I was then able to make my informed decision of what is this? What does it mean for me? What's its potential impact? If you don't have that knowledge, you can't make the right decision. And you can't expect the average employee to know this if a finance employee has no idea what it is. And the majority of your company is going to be employees who don't understand equity. So truly understanding it and explaining it well, I think is a really easy way for you to separate yourself as an employer that can help you with not just hiring, but also retaining those employees. And building trust with them. Like, look, I, I respect you so much. I want you to trust me. Let me be very transparent on what this actually means. When it's like disguised in secrecy, I feel like your employees can sniff that bullshit so fast. Totally. Treat people like adults. You think they're smart. That's why you're hiring them. You wouldn't if you didn't. So why exactly. are you hiding this information from them? Treat them intelligently, treat them like adults. And if they disagree with your compensation practices, use that as a data point. Maybe you are underpaying people or you're doing a poor job explaining things. But if you just hide this all together, you're just hoping they don't ask these questions 
And they're going to quit on it when they find out later. So like, why not just find that out now? Or they're going to tell each other. I, I tell it's them, please, y'all should, yeah. y'all should, I mean, like y'all should tell each other how much money you make. Yeah. I know I'm paying you all fairly and equitably. So tell each other because you're going to find out you're being paid fairly and equitably. See, like, but then that's a way where, <laughs> that's a way where your organization can separate itself and raise its employer brand relative to others because other companies would say, don't talk about compensation, which by the way, in many places would be illegal to say such a thing. But yes, maybe it's, you know, kind of incentivize in different ways to not talk openly about compensation. Well, Taboo. maybe you have skeletons in the closet that you want to hide. If you didn't, all of a sudden you can be transparent. And you can be transparent about a lot of other things if you can be transparent about compensation. Yeah, but I think compensation scares people. Like a lot of CEOs I know want to do the right thing, but they're scared about being transparent about compensation. And it's like, why are you scared if we're doing the right thing? If we're doing the right thing, like we can stand by it and it'll be the right thing. But it's still, I think, just we're conditioned to not talk about it. We all have like manners we've been taught. And one of them is you don't tell people how much money you make. Yeah. And I think that's like quite silly. But anyways, let's let's move on. I could rant about this forever. Um, I frequently joke that data is my love language. Um, it's screw all the other five. It's data for me. I want to see it all in a spreadsheet and I'm happy. But there's been a lack of data and analytics historically in HR when it comes to compensation and compensation management, either from market data is like too expensive for anyone to access to we just don't have the right data in front of us. Like, how have you thought about this problem and solving it either with technology or just in your personal experience? Data is so important. It's one of the inputs that helps you make decisions. But one thing I would warn companies is seeing data as the solution. Like data alone is not what actually helps you make a decision. It's certainly a very valuable an important input. But to your point, you might find that market data is too expensive, or incomplete, or inaccurate because market data tells you an engineer makes $50,000 a year. And you're like, there's no way I can hire a software engineer in the US at $50,000 a year. I don't know where they're getting this data from. And so I think that you need to go in with a sober mind, understanding, hey, no market data set is perfect, but you should still try to find enough market data that helps you build your confidence. And if you can't, then what are you going to do? You're going to have to do something. And so I think being prepared for that potential reality is important. And you do have ample data at times. You may not have that market data set, but you can see job postings from other companies. You may have existing employee compensation data that can inform, hey, on average, what have we been paying? But in a perfect world, you would be able to find market data set that is affordable for your organization, is accurate and relevant for the roles you're hiring for, in the industry you're hiring for, in the location you're hiring for. It's just the unfortunate part is, that's not like the absolute reality for a lot of businesses. I've always thought that with Assemble, we can help companies face that reality of maybe you don't have one perfect market data set, so you have to rely on multiple data sets, or maybe you have such a unique compensation program that no data set is going to help. you. A good example of that is you might be an organization that says, we don't pay differently on salary we are pay for performance and we pay differently based on bonuses at the end of the year. And for that reason, we are going to pay every level the same. Well, that's a very different philosophy than a company that says, we always aim to pay at the 50th percentile and we differentiate on salary based on tenure, performance, skill set, et cetera. And that's so different from a third company. And I've actually met companies that do this, which is they look at the cost basis of, this is how many dollars in total we can allocate to this department. We think we need 25 heads to support the needs of that function. 
and we're going to divide that and that's going to be the average compensation. So if we hire someone at above that average, we need to compensate that with someone that's below that average. And that's a much more kind of like backwards looking and not market driven at all, but worked well for that company. And so I think like data is such an important factor into your program. And notice that for that third category of companies I was talking about, they did use data. It just wasn't market data. So that's where I think companies should be looking at data and metrics. And one thing that kind of I think it's important to highlight, I have seen so many different functions in my former job and the finance seat where I saw sales and marketing and engineering come with all of these metrics and reports and dashboards. And it was always very difficult for HR to come or the people team to come with similar metrics or dashboards, in part because they didn't have the tooling, in part because they didn't have the way to capture and report on this data. And so I think it's one of the things that has exacerbated this bad reputation for people leaders as not being very data-driven or very metrics-driven. And I think that there's an opportunity for people leaders to really step up and be strategic in capturing some of the internal data first, being able to report on it, and then show, hey, I can't actually report on this because I don't have the budget for purchasing market data. So what you're asking me to do is an impossible task. How am I supposed to do that? Right? Or you're asking me to report on the employee attrition due to compensation, but I have no way of capturing categories of data. So how am I supposed to do my job, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, if I don't have the proper tooling? That's such a good point. The the tooling is always the hardest. I'm telling you, like, I just feel like HR is the last people to get budget. But the reality is I almost wish the, it was flipped that we were the first people because we're the people responsible for attracting and retaining the talent. And we know like replacing, like you said earlier, is so expensive. And also, like, you want people to do their best and feel like they're compensated fairly and they're going to show up and do better work if they feel like they're compensated fairly. But we often don't get the tools to actually do that. And so it feels like a lot of times HR is like a losing battle some days where I get like really disenfranchised with my own work because I'm like, I can't get the things I need to do this job really well. Yeah, it's tough. I battle it every day. I try to support our people, leaders who are customers and friends of ours in trying to get, you know, we're not asking for the world. It's, it's get enough budget so that you can succeed at your job, which should help the company accomplish its objectives. I do think oh, yeah. there's obviously a reason why early stage companies struggle more than larger companies because they'll say, if we don't double sales, there's no team, we don't there's exist. no anything. Yeah, we and don't so exist. I do understand the motivations of smaller, earlier stage companies, uh, but at some point I think that goes away. And so you have to combat that early stage mentality at some point and say, enough is enough. We've reached the size the size of the organization where this idea of not giving HR budget is not going to be productive. It's going to be counterproductive to what we're hoping to accomplish. It's so silly. Also market data, my one hot take on market data, I'm just full of hot yeah. takes today, is that it's like a moment in time capture. So like yeah. sometimes you're looking at market data that is like six months old to a year, but you're trying to build your compensation bands off of something that isn't relevant anymore. And we've saw We've seen the world like in the last year and a half, like inflation all time high, cost of living all time high. And so, but you're looking at data that benchmark all of that or took all that into consideration from a year ago to make your current bands. So, like, how do people navigate that where like market data is always old? I mean, you said it like data isn't everything, but how else can they navigate that? And let me posit a wrinkle that makes it even harder. Yeah. What if it's old, but it's actually higher than what it is today, which is a reality yeah. we're seeing in a lot of situations. So okay. now you are making decisions for new hires on data that's six months old when companies were paying more for a job than they can pay today. Yeah. That employee that got paid 
whatever rate you gave them, they're going to expect increases to that. You're never going to decrease their pay. I have yep. yet to meet a company that has been able to successfully tell an employee, hey, we overpaid you, so we're going to lower your pay, but don't worry and don't leave the company. It's because it's what's going to be fair and equitable to everyone else. What's more likely to happen is the company will do nothing and hope for the best, or will pay everybody else to match that new employee, which is just super costly for the company. So yeah. market data, I think, is very important, but I don't think it's a panacea. I've even written about it. I think it should inform decisions, but it shouldn't dictate it because it's not perfect. And it's not yeah. a perfect predictor of what market data will be in six months or a year, which is the next time you're going to change somebody's compensation. As something that it should have data and should be based in data, it feels more of like an art some days than a science where it's like you're constantly just trying to navigate it, but also not create inequities and not upset your employees and also get everyone's buy-in. And that's why there's like entire teams whose jobs are just compensation. Yeah. It is so much more complicated than I thought it was. Exactly. Yeah. And so how can a people leader or a people team who's owning so many different programs do this really well and without tools? Like, I think it's just a losing battle and really, really tough. If you're a smaller yeah. team, you might as well just say, look, we're going to have five levels. Everyone in level one gets paid the same. Everyone in level two gets paid the same. We're not going to change things because that at least is simple and easy to explain. And then one, we have enough to actually fund a you know, a people team with a comp tool or a compensation team, then we'll be more sophisticated. Those companies are going to be able to move much easier, can be transparent about it, can avoid a lot of these issues versus the companies that are saying like, we're just going to kind of wing it and hopefully nothing bad happens. Like that just seems like a recipe for disaster. It never, yeah, it never works. It always crashes and burns. In the back of my head, I'm always playing a game called like, when is the thing that I think is going to happen, happen? And it yeah. always like, I'm always like, that person thinks they're underpaid. So they're going to leave and like, six months and always within three months they've yeah. decided to leave and i'm like would you look at that i knew that was gonna happen but like i mean it feels like a losing battle but let's give people some hope let's give people some hope <laughs> in this um i want to talk a bit for a second because i i noticed um on assemble's website you will talk about like pay equity too and you said that was a big part of your story like you wanted to know that you were being paid equitably but how have you seen hr departments historically handle pay equity when it comes to their DEI programs and trying to ensure actual fairness and compliance. How have, you, how have you seen leaders navigate that? Yeah, I would say like one thing a lot of people leaders do is ignore it, which is really bad, right? You ignore it maybe because you don't have the know-how or you don't have the budget. And it is yeah. very expensive to seek help on equity. Don't worry, I'll give some hope in a moment. But the kind of second path is when you do outsource things. And I don't necessarily think outsourcing is bad. The kind of the metaphor that I use is you yourself, if you're not a doctor, you shouldn't self-diagnose what is wrong with you. If something hurts, you, you should go see a medical professional that can actually tell you what's wrong. But it okay. doesn't mean that you should ignore the signs and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't take care of yourself. So you can take care of yourself with good habits and a healthy diet and exercise. And I think that pay equity is kind of the same way, which is, okay, make informed decisions, understand how you're making a decision for every employee and understand yeah. that gender is a factor and race and ethnicity and age, all three are EEOC protected categories, but there are other factors that you might want to really care about too. Some companies over index on performance or, you know, uh, education. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you need to at least understand it and monitor it. If you don't have a system, it's very taxing and consuming to do it. But again, you can keep things a lot simpler and easier for you. 
So I, I would say like there's really three key components to informing your compensation program. You can start with a very simple program to help ensure you are being fair and equitable from the start. And as your organization becomes more complex, then you can evolve that program. Those three things are, first and foremost, a compensation philosophy. This is where you can reach alignment between your leadership team and your HR and finance team and recruiting and everybody and be transparent about it. The second one is going to be a job architecture, a simple set of jobs and levels that dictate like what are the jobs we are hiring for and what's the requirement or the expectations for each of those jobs. You can be super detailed and very complex, or you can keep it very simple, kind of like I said. Maybe it's as simple as three levels. You are a junior employee, intermediate, and senior. And you have some way to discern the differences between those three. And then the last or third piece is you build compensation bands around those. The band could be a single point if you want to keep things super simple, and there are trade-offs with that. Or you can build bands and have some rules or guidance around how you use those bands. You can be formulaic, you can be a bit more discretionary, but if you have those three components, a comp philosophy, a job architecture, and comp bands, and use those for making your decisions, you will avoid a lot of the pay inequities that become prohibitively expensive for you to fix down the line. Because you'll know, I am going to level an employee, I am going to pay them within the range, and if there is some discretion, I need to be able to substantiate why someone is on the lower end or on the higher end of that range. And if you document that, all of a sudden, you can avoid a lot of the pain that you go through in the future. When it yeah. comes down to that pay equity study, you're like, I have all the data. I've made decisions the right way. It should be a simple pass versus a very costly diagnosis that leads to a lot of pain. Yeah, that's such a good point. I love those three simple steps that definitely listeners are walking with a lot today. You're, you're giving them a lot of good advice. Um it's it's just fascinating because there's like so much data too about like how recently the data that came out that was like women actually negotiate more than men in offers. They're just not given the pay. And people, a lot of people were like, what do you think about that? Like, is that true? And I'm like, yeah, like sometimes HR is making this decision in a vacuum and we don't have the right things in place. We don't have those pay bands. We don't have that job architecture. And we just say, sure, we'll give this man more. And yeah. we've seen like, we're not going to close the pay equity gap for like another 140 some years. And it's even longer for um, women of color. And so it's like, yeah. we're looking at, I will be dead in my grave for a long time decomposing before women are making the same amount of men for the same work. And there's a lot that can be done on the HR side. I just like did a whole panel on this where I was like, we as HR can actually fix this problem we just have to have our structure, our system in place. And when someone comes to you and says, make an exception, you have to feel comfortable saying no, yeah. full stop. And here's why we are not making this exception. Yeah. But I think the no is really hard because a lot of HR people, leaders even, don't feel empowered to say no. Totally. So You know, it's interesting. In building Assemble, I've had to learn about a bunch of the different functions. Sales, for example, <laughs> at least on the enterprise sales side. One of the best practices you can have is actually have a sales process with discovery questions and specific steps you take. Don't skip them because you're either going to lose the deal or you are going to mm -hmm. have an unhappy customer that will churn and that's you know kind of counterproductive for you in the long term. Very similarly, when it comes to compensation decisions, have a program or a structure and follow it. And that's going to lead you to having the right people and having them for longer. One of the most frustrating things I saw in my last company, and I hope to avoid as much as possible at Assemble, is 
hiring someone who leaves early. You spent so much time and effort going through resumes, talking with people to find the right person. Hopefully they say yes to you. And if that person leaves in less than a year, that was such a waste. Now you have to start the process over again and you've lost a whole year and it's going to take months until the new hire is productive. So why not follow the right steps to ensure you get the right person and they stay as long as possible? That's such, there you go. You heard it first. It, we, we're making it sound simple, but like it's yeah. a work in progress for HR people. I think a lot of HR people are like very passionate about pay transparency laws because they're finally seeing like, okay, now I can do the right thing and I can say legally we have to do the right yeah. thing. And so I think it's like an exciting churn for us. And I think like 13, eight states have passed pay transparency laws. I think another 13 have some sort of legislation in place to do it's it. It's a matter of time. And I know. I'm very excited about it because I'm like, it just, it'll make work so much better for so many people to mm -hmm. really understand, am I being paid fairly for the work that I am doing, regardless of my gender, ethnicity? Like, you know, there's so many factors that come into play. So knowing that you're paying people fairly is super important. Okay. Last question, and then we'll get to your hill to die on. But in your opinion, what are the key takeaways for HR's past mistakes and compensation management? Like, what are some things that we have learned from our past mistakes that people should take away from today's episode. Yeah. The first is have alignment. Not having alignment is going to be the root cause of so many of your compensation problems, inability to hire and attract talent, inability to retain employees, and just frankly, lack of productivity. So establishing alignment up front is so important. The second one is have an actual system in place. And again, when I say system, I mean more of a compensation program a way or framework that guides your decisions. You can stand by it, it scales, it's something you can educate others on, and you can actually reach greater consistency that has huge impacts for your pay equity posture, your ability to hire employees, your ability to communicate compensation effectively. It's just really important. The third one, I think it's like a little bit more tactical. It's like lead with transparent compensation. Don't wait until the end of a recruitment process or don't wait until a couple of weeks before you have a comp cycle to tell people, hey, this is when we're going to do it. Give people a lead start. Once people have visibility that, oh, this is the range for the job or people have visibility into, oh, we receive raises in June. People know what to work forward to, know what to work towards. If you don't have that, it induces a lot of stress and uncertainty for people that can be very costly, whether it's attrition, or you spend weeks or months recruiting candidates, you find the right one, and then now you start talking about compensation and you realize you're totally misaligned and that person cannot accept your job. You wish you had known that upfront, not at the end. Oh, that's the first question I ask. That's literally the first yeah, question. Yeah, you should leave with composition. It's so easy. Um, and then the last one I think is like, understand that there are trade-offs. I think a lot of companies strive to be perfect in all fronts. And like the reality is you, you can't. You have to understand what are the trade-offs. So for example, you don't have budget to do a lot of things. Then maybe the answer is keep things a little bit simpler because it'll be easier to maintain, easier to communicate, and easier to administer. If you do have budget, maybe you can get greater data. You can get a compensation tool. You can be a bit more complex. You can bring in more managers into the process, but understand the trade-offs. Similarly, looking at location, you might be a remote company that doesn't care where an employee is and you want to pay the same rate for every location. Well, a trade-off of that, of that is it's going to be more expensive for you as an organization than companies that do the CERN based on location. And it's okay to be that way, but you need to understand the trade-off. And so I would say like that's by probably fourth piece. And the last question, composition is always on. 
it's not a set it and forget it activity. Yeah. Your employees certainly will not just forget about it. Trust me. No way. Everyone's thinking about how much they're getting paid all the time. All the time. That's the number one thing employees come to me for. It's the number one thing they go to their managers for. They want to know, when am I getting paid and when can I get paid more? I'll, no one is showing up to work to do work for free. Like, out of the goodness of my heart, I did not show up to work today. Like, <laughs> I showed up because I got paid and I got a life. That's, like, that's I, the while I love company. my job. Exactly. I mean, like, I love my job. I derive so much happiness from it. But at the end of the day, like, I need to also live and pay bills. Yeah. So it's like, you can't do it everyone wants to know. Exactly. There's literally nothing I'm doing for free. Um, okay. With that, we've reached the end of our episode. You've shared so many helpful things for people. Um, I would love to know before we wrap up and you tell people how to reach you, what is your one compensation hill that you will die on? The one thing that you say, my mind will never change about this thing. Market data should inform your decisions, not dictate them. I personally do not subscribe to the idea of what does the market data say? I pay exactly that percentile because fundamentally no market data set is perfect. It's very nuanced. You need to have market data that's large enough and it's relevant to your industry, your stage of company, your location. You also need to understand that the way that data is collected for a lot of businesses is you look at employees in some sort of survey, you somehow determine who is a level one versus two versus three for that data provider's you know, kind of leveling framework. And then you report statistical aggregate stats on that. Sometimes when you look at the data, it says things that do not pass the sanity test, where a level four employee makes less than a level three employee. In what world would you be able to stand to your organization and say such a thing? Or you'll look at the size of the bands and they're completely irregular. And so I think data is really important, but unless we are able to create a universal and perfect data set for every single employee in the world that's somehow perfectly normalized, data should be taken with a grain of salt and it should inform decisions but not dictate them. And I'm willing to die on that hill. Love it. I'm same, honestly. I hate market data some days. I'm like, this makes no sense. I want to know how you collected this data. That's like the first thing I want to know. I'm like, how is this being reported? How are we standardizing it? And they'll never tell you. Um, okay, that was great. That was so much fun. But tell everybody how they can get in touch with you and find yes. you either on LinkedIn, socials, and learn more about Assemble. Absolutely. Um, so our corporate website is assemble.inc, I-N-C. You can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I spend more of my time. I spend as much time on same. X or Twitter as perhaps other uh, startup CEOs do. And if you have any questions, you can definitely reach out to me personally on LinkedIn, or you can reach out to us at assemble.inc. There are ways where you can reach out to us. Info at assemble.inc is the easiest way to get a hold of the whole company. Um, and I'm an open book. Frankly, if people have questions on compensation, I talk to people all the time, even when they're not a good fit for the product we've built, to the stage, size, whatever it might be. But if I can be helpful to them, it supports our mission. So I'm happy to always spend that time to be helpful. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me today. I loved our conversation from our first one about compensation to this one. I mean, we are very aligned. <laughs> you have yeah. a lot of really good hot takes. And I think HR people have the potential to really fix compensation problems we're seeing. I think so, so too. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.